Hi listeners, you're listening to the Highly Sensitive MD podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be a highly sensitive person in medicine. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for joining me for episode two of the Highly Sensitive MD podcast. The title of this episode is An HSP Gets an MD, and it's basically a deep dive into my own journey as a highly sensitive person um, navigating life and medical training and practice. Um, I think if you've decided to listen to this podcast, um, I feel like you deserve to know a little bit more about me and what led me to the point of making it. Um, and I suspect that a lot of my experiences will actually be familiar to you. And if you are a highly sensitive person, I hope it prompts you to look at back at some of your past experiences and examine them with this new lens of better understanding your sensitivity. Okay, so... I'm going to start by taking you way back to childhood, which is when some of the traits of HSP start to become apparent. And as you know, if you listen to the first episode, I answered yes to every single question on Dr. Aaron's um, HSP quiz on her website. So I am a great poster child for being highly sensitive. And like many other HSPs, I was a very shy child. Um, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a very peaceful home. My parents have always had a remarkably stable, healthy relationship, and I also went to a really small nurturing school where I eventually got comfortable enough to actually participate in class and interact with my teachers. So overall, I would say I had a pretty uneventful childhood. However, I did have a lot of sensory quirks. So I would get very upset over noise pollution, like if my grandmother was running the sewing machine or my mom had the exhaust fan going in the kitchen and the TV was on. I hated that. I also hated Indian wedding receptions. If you've ever been to an Indian wedding reception, specifically a Punjabi wedding reception, you know that they can get very loud and that was very stressful for me. Um, I was also a very picky eater, not surprisingly, and I was a very picky dresser. So specifically, I hated pants. Denim was basically my worst enemy. I would do everything to avoid having to wear actual pants. I remember hiding them in the back of my closet so that my mom wouldn't grab them and ask me to put them on before school. Um, I just thought the fabric was too stiff and too uncomfortable and restrictive. I think I was maybe 11 years old when I got my first actual pair of jeans. And even then, I'm pretty sure they had an elastic waistband. Um, I actually remember uh, the first time I bought like a real pair of jeans. I think it was junior high. And I remember my aunt took me to Mervyn's, which I don't think exists anymore. And was just like, you know, this oversized sweater and legging look you got going on is just really outdated and you need to step it up because it's the year 2000. So she she bought me my first real pair of pants. Um, and I mean, honestly, even to this day, like I, I don't don't love pants, would, would prefer something with an elastic waistband pretty much any day. 
So I know it may all sound kind of silly now, but um, I bring up the whole pants saga for a very specific reason, because I do think it's a great example of something that can be viewed through a different lens um, that helps you see the way you are or the way you were with a little bit more compassion. I think it would be very easy for me or other people to look back at myself as a child and think, okay, I was this wimpy weird kid and I had a very low threshold for physical discomfort and so I just refused to wear pants or I could look back at it through the lens of being highly sensitive and know that it was one of the first manifestations of a very high level of sensory processing sensitivity and that that same sensitivity has carried through to adulthood and is now been the reason that I might appreciate a very subtle rash or feel the edge of a liver or the fluctuance of an abscess under the skin that might not be as easy to appreciate for everyone else. Isn't that kind of an amazing thought? I really hope that resonates with some of you. Um, Now that I'm a mom, I'm actually so grateful to remember a lot of these things about my childhood because Um, my son's almost two and whenever he does something slightly odd I can remind myself that I did a lot of odd things and I think it would be very easy for an anxious parent especially an anxious physician parent who knows a little too much to start jumping to conclusions about what some of these behaviors might mean and it's been really reassuring and helpful to me to remind myself that for me all of these little quirks were not necessarily a sign of something else going on um but were parts of who I am and parts that still serve me in some way. Okay, so moving on to high school. Um, I had a very boring high school experience. I went to a very um, buttoned up Catholic all girls um, prep school in California. Um, High school for me was all about academics. My parents did a really good job of removing any and every distraction from my life. Um, I went to school, I came home, I did my activities and my homework, and that was pretty much it. And I have always been somebody who enjoyed school, so I was happy to do this. (laughs) It didn't really bother me at the time. Um, And uh, in retrospect, again, being highly sensitive, I am sort of grateful that I had so little opportunity to be overwhelmed at that age and I I think it allowed me to do as well as I did in high school but it definitely came at a price because when I got to college I had a lot of things to learn and a lot of new experiences to have Um, so that's where things kind of got interesting so um, I went to undergrad at Stanford and I never expected to get in there I um had actually sent a deposit to a different school that I had got a scholarship at and that I was um, pretty sure I was going to go to because I figured the rejection from Stanford was coming any day. Um, I think from the moment I set foot on campus, I was just so exquisitely aware of how incredibly smart everybody around me was. And I just had that overwhelming feeling of being a fraud or a mistake. I remember thinking, gosh, I'm not an Olympian. I didn't start a nonprofit when I was 16. I'm just a nerdy Indian kid and there's like a million of us. Why would I deserve to be here? 
And what's so ironic about that is how many of the people that I was in awe of felt the same way and would think, well, maybe I just got in because I can swim really fast or throw a softball or maybe because my parents went here. So it turns out that the majority of us were actually having those thoughts and the data on imposter syndrome reflects that because we now know that somewhere around 80% of people actually have it at some point in their life. And I would bet that for highly sensitive people, it's even higher than that. And I think for me, the reason imposter syndrome hit me so hard is because of how aware I was of other people's talents and intelligence and strength. And I was also very easily overwhelmed. So it became hard for me to sort of perform or focus on my own growth and development because I was so busy taking in everything that was going on around me. And I bet that's true of a lot of other HSPs. So for me, um, imposter syndrome has also been kind of a chronic condition. It's had a relapsing and rebinding course. And usually it's some source of external validation that will make it go away for a while, but then it always comes back. Um, so for me, the first few years of college were a bit of a mess. I was just a mess academically, socially, romantically. Like I was a very mediocre student. Um, and that really fit into this narrative that I had in my head of not really belonging at Stanford. Um, and then my junior year, uh, or between my junior and senior years, I, I took the MCAT in preparation for applying to med school. And I did shockingly well. Um, and I hate to say that this single number um, had such a big effect on me, but it really did. It completely knocked me out of that um, state of mind that I had been in for so long um, and made me think, okay, that B minus I got in chem lab is not actually a reflection of my innate intelligence. And maybe I can go to med school and maybe I can compete with all these really smart people that I go to school with. Um, but, you know, that was temporary. <laughs> and I rode that high for a few years. And then, um, again, the same thing happened where I landed at a place where I felt surrounded by really smart people. And that same feeling of being out of place or inferior just came right back. So sort of looking back on this period of my life, there's two points I want to make. One is about external validation and the other is about imposter syndrome. So one thing that I think is really unique about medicine is that if you are somebody like me who's sort of, um, I think, wired to unconsciously crave and seek external validation you are going to keep getting it in medicine. You're going to keep getting it until you're like 30 years old because the structure of our education and training is such that there's so many hoops to jump through and so much of it is based on these objective measures and evaluations and there's this very rigid framework. And so first you take the MCAT and you get your grades in college and you go through this very rigorous process of med school applications and then you get in and then you have more grades and you have boards and you have clinical rotations and evaluations on those and then you go through this rigorous process of matching and so there's sort of always a stamp of approval waiting for you around the corner. And I think when you go through a process like that, it's very easy to lose yourself in it and to start 
allowing your self-image to be sort of shaped by those external validators. And for me, the experience was once I finished training and went out into the community to do primary care, uh, the external validation kind of dried up. (laughs) And for the first time in my life, I felt like I really had to start making decisions based on my own values and priorities and strengths. And that felt weird because I felt like I hadn't had to do that for a very long time since the path was so well laid out for me. And I actually think this is how so many people sort of end up arriving at like their holy grail attending job and looking around and thinking, wait, what am I doing here? Like, I don't know if I even really like this because we've just spent so many years kind of taking the next logical step and not being forced to really think about what we want and what kind of job would actually cater to our strengths and serve our needs and align with our values. And I think as doctors, we're just not used to even thinking about those things because so much of what we've done for you know, a decade of our lives is so rigid and structured. So the other point I wanted to make is about imposter syndrome. Um, I feel like imposter syndrome is really hot right now. It's like definitely a part of the consciousness in a way that it really wasn't 10 or 15 years ago when I was first experiencing it. But um, there's a thought that I have about imposter syndrome that I don't hear discussed very often. And it's one that I think has held me back from really letting go of it for a very long time. And that's this feeling that if I were to actually accept ownership of my accomplishments and truly believe that I earned and deserved them, that I would automatically be denying all of the ways that luck and privilege and other people's actions led to my success. And I think especially as a highly sensitive person who's um, spent a lot of time thinking about this, I am acutely aware of the ways in which I was set up to succeed and not just the obvious ones of being born into a family that was able to support me financially and supported my education, gave me access to resources, but um, I think back even further, like I think about my grandparents crossing the border between Pakistan and India on foot with whatever they could carry in 1947. I think about my dad having to send a cassette tape of himself speaking English to get a residency spot in the U.S. Um, I mean, I just think about all of the different things that had to happen for me to even exist and to have the life that I have. And so when I really think about all of those things, it feels so arrogant and impossible to even consider acting like, oh, yeah, I deserve all of this. I earned it. Um, and I think I sort of have this um, unconscious fear or subconscious fear that really taking ownership of that success would make me this um, arrogant, ungrateful person. And I would somehow lose the drive or humility that has led me to the point that I'm at. And I think that thought really kept me stuck in my own imposter syndrome. And I would bet that this is true for a lot of other highly sensitive people, especially um, the ones that are also children of immigrants. Um, But what I've come to realize is that I think I was creating a false dichotomy there. And I was convincing myself that these two things were mutually exclusive and they're not. 
And it really is possible to take ownership of your own success while acknowledging how other people and privilege and luck have contributed to it. And the times in my life when I've been able to feel most proud and confident and deserving, um, those were the times that I achieved something and in that moment openly expressed gratitude to the people and circumstances that I felt got me there. I remember the night before I graduated from medical school, my entire extended family had flown out to San Diego and uh, we all went out to dinner at Fred's uh, for tacos. And I remember kind of giving them uh, a little speech and thanking basically everyone at the table, like my cousins for doing my boards flashcards with me and my uncle for driving me to the airport for my interviews. And, you know, obviously my mom and dad for everything they've done and just telling them like, it's not you know, the MDs behind my name, but it's not me earning this. Like it's ours. Like we, we earned this degree together. Um, and that felt so good. And ironically, you know, acknowledging other people and their contributions and luck and chance and privilege and all of those things doesn't end up feeling like it takes away or diminishes my own ownership of those successes. It, it actually just allows me to lean into it in a way that I think I've had trouble doing otherwise. So basically, gratitude is the secret sauce that makes everything better. I feel like that's a lesson that life has been trying to teach me for a while, and it really is true. So I want to end this um, podcast on a note of gratitude. Um, You know, I intended for this originally to be a weekly podcast, and I did um, originally record this, I think, three or four weeks ago. Um, And then I got sick, and my son got sick, and then I got sick again. And over the course of those few weeks, I became riddled with self-doubt and started thinking, oh gosh, who wants to listen to 20 minutes of you rambling about your life? How self-indulgent? Is anybody even listening to this? Like, does it matter? And, um... In that time, I've had several people reach out to me and say, hey, where's the next episode? I've been waiting for it. And uh, I've been getting these little alerts in my email that's like, your podcast has 50 downloads, 150 downloads, 200 downloads. So um, that, you know, gave me the little push I needed that um, maybe there is value in what I'm putting out into the universe and I should continue to do it. So, you know, I, I too am still on the journey of um, overcoming my own self-doubt and um, not looking for external validators to motivate me. Um, but I really do appreciate you for listening this far. And if you left a review or reached out to me, I appreciate that even more. So thank you. I'm actually going to cut this episode short and release it as two parts because I really want to keep the episodes sort of bite-sized and digestible and I don't want to bore you. So I'm sorry that you just listened to like the less eventful, boring half of my life in this part. But um, the second episode I titled, or the second part of this episode I've titled uh, Burnout, Potassium Replacement, and Lexapro. And that will basically uh, go through uh, my journey in medical school residency and in practice. Um, And I am both excited and terrified to record that episode and share it uh, because I am planning on um, sharing a lot of experiences that I consider deeply personal, but also that I think are far more common than most of us going through them realize. And since I've been so sporadic about putting up new episodes, I hope you'll subscribe so you'll be sure to uh, not miss that. 
If you enjoyed listening or found this information helpful, I hope you will subscribe, leave a review, or tell a highly sensitive friend or colleague. As I said in the beginning of the show, the purpose of this podcast is not to sell you anything or coach you or promote my practice. I simply want to share information that was helpful for me and get it to those who need to hear it. So please spread the word and remember to stay sensitive. Thank you.